Hello, my name is Anthony. You are listening to the Ton of Questions podcast. The goal here is to answer questions for those who are curious and to spark curiosity in the minds of those who are not, who may be listening. Have you got a question? Let me know. Let's get started. Nuclear power. Some people love it. Some people despise it. But no matter which camp you reside, it's here to stay. It's productive. It can be destructive. Welcome to the Ton of Questions podcast. This is episode seven. I am Anthony and I will be your host today. And this is the first episode of a series in which we are going to cover a lot of ground. In these episodes, we're going to have a semi-high altitude discussion on nuclear power for the layman, for the non-engineer, for the curious person. But in order to do that, we will get into some of the gears and cogs of atoms and electrons and protons and neutrons and how all they interact. Shh, don't tell anyone, but we're going to be talking about physics. Why so much detail, you might be wondering? Well, we need to because it's helpful to have a true understanding of what's going on rather than just some parrot answer that I could give you and call it done. At the end of each of these episodes, I'm going to ask you to reach out to me if you'd like to be on a future episode of this podcast regarding this topic or any other. And I would welcome you if you are pro-nuclear. I would also welcome you if you're anti-nuclear too. You can ask questions about the content that I've covered or add to what I've said or even oppose what I've said. I'm open and would love to share your knowledge, thoughts, and feelings, your beliefs, opinions, and or even your fears if you have them about nuclear power. To contact me to make arrangements to be a guest on the Ton of Questions podcast, simply reach out to me on the newly added feature to my website called SpeakPipe. All you have to do is click on the button, record your message, and send it. It's just like leaving a voicemail. I'll receive it as a an email attachment and we'll get back to you, and we can go forward from there. In full disclosure, if you've listened to the introduction episode of this podcast, you are already aware of my position in terms of nuclear power. If not, the short version is this. I have worked in the nuclear field for the majority of my 39 years of my working career, and I'm in the camp that says nuclear power is the safest, most environmentally friendly form of power generation that we have. And in terms of weaponization of the nuclear forces is concerned, as long as, quote, your side, unquote, whichever side that might be, has and controls an equal or greater nuclear weapon arsenal, it will keep, quote, the other guys, unquote, the bad guys in check, and the result will be peace. Believe me, I know that statement can be a very controversial one. Let's get started, shall we? These are the main questions that we are going to answer in this series. Question one. When I think about nuclear power, the first question that comes to mind is how'd they figure all that stuff out? I mean, we're talking about things that are so small and at that time, we weren't even sure what, if anything, that small existed. Question number two. Have you ever thought about how it is that nuclear power can be both wonderfully productive as well as mind-bogglingly destructive. Question number three, 
what makes the difference between a nuclear power plant that will produce an astronomical amount of electricity for the grid without polluting the atmosphere and a nuclear bomb that is capable of mass destruction. Question number four. Can a commercial nuclear plant that generates electricity explode into a mushroom cloud that can devastate an entire state like a nuclear weapon could? If you have any of those questions or any other questions about nuclear power for that matter, well, you've come to the right place. I will answer all of these questions one by one, but we must first start out with a little bit of the backstory. From the moment God created Adam, we as humans have been a curious lot. Don't worry, we're not going to start at Genesis 1-1 in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, other than to say that God did create everything that we have today, and he created it from nothing. Included in that everything is uranium, which is an element, one of many of the basic building blocks of our universe. One quick disclaimer about nuclear physics. What I learned when I was in school is that there are so many moving parts to understanding all of these things that I'm going to share that we had a running joke. We each had an I believe button. There were many times when the concepts that were being explained had several different concepts that were extremely difficult to grasp until you had all of the context of all of the concepts and could connect them all together. So each individual concept was being introduced. We had to suspend our confusion. We had to press that I believe button for a bit until the other concepts were explained. And then there was the light bulb moment. A little side note, that light bulb moment, that's what I really like when I'm sharing information or I'm trying to teach a concept is when you get that aha moment. So if throughout any of these podcasts, whether it's this nuclear one or any of the others, if I explain something and it gives you that aha light bulb moment, please share that. Please hop over to the website, tonofquestions.com, hit that speak pipe button and send me a voice message. All right, let's get back into the program. Some quick terminology is in order if an understanding of what I'm going to share is to make sense. The atom. An atom is the smallest particle that can retain its own chemical and physical properties. It can be split, but then we have a bunch of subatomic particles that all act the same. Picture a drinking glass, a glass serving bowl, and a glass vase. If we threw all three down on a hard concrete floor, what would we have? Well, I can tell you what we wouldn't have. We would no longer have a drinking glass, a serving bowl, and a vase. We'd have a bunch of broken glass to clean up, right? Atoms are classified into elements based on the number of protons in the nucleus. Change the number of protons, change the element from which that atom was classified as. You see how I'm jumping around? I gave you the concept of an element, and if we break it up, we get a bunch of subatomic particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons. Now we're talking about atoms. Now we're talking about elements. Here's the first one, hydrogen. Hydrogen is an element that has one proton. Oxygen, the very thing that we need to sustain life, 
Oxygen is another element that has eight protons. Copper. Copper is the stuff that we make all those wires that transfer electricity from the point at which the electricity is generated all the way to our house, to the outlet, to the lamp that we're going to get some light from, or the computer that turns on to allow us to listen to this podcast. Copper. It's a conductor. Copper has 29 protons. Gold. Gold is an element. And it has 79 protons. And then we have uranium. Uranium has 92 protons and so on. If you've ever walked into a high school chemistry lab, you're probably familiar with that big poster that was likely hanging on the walls of that classroom. And it's called the Periodic Chart of the Elements. That chart lists all of the elements and gives a lot of information about those elements based on the position of the element on the chart and the fine print that's within each box. There's a ton of information on that chart. As of the recording of this episode, there are currently 118 known elements in our universe. Back when I was in high school, the periodic chart of the elements only went up to 103. We need to understand that Some of these elements are naturally occurring in our universe. Uranium is one of them. Copper is another one. Others are produced synthetically. In other words, man-made through experimentation. Man-made by bombarding an atom. Here's another concept that I'm asking you to kind of pull in and, and just press the I believe button on it for just a little bit. Other elements are man-made by bombarding an atom with another subatomic particle to allow them to combine. These artificial elements are usually radioactive and may only exist for a fraction of a second before they decay. They're there and they're gone. We typically learn about these in particle accelerators. There's also another source of elements present in our universe that are produced through the decay process of other radioactive elements and and their path to release this excess energy. So there's another term. So if I have an atom that is not radioactive, we consider that atom to be in its ground state. It does not have any excess energy. But if I take an atom that is radioactive, What that atom is doing is it's holding on to excess energy, but it's trying to release it. And it's releasing it in one of or many different types of radiation. Could be gamma radiation. It could be neutron radiation. It could be alpha or beta radiation. That radiation is coming off of that element. The element or the atom is giving up that energy and it's decaying. And eventually, it'll decay into something that's stable. So, all of our elements that we know about that have 95 protons or less are naturally occurring. Well, can be naturally occurring. I said that wrong. The statement that I want to say is all of the elements with 95 protons or more within the nucleus are synthetic or man-made. Okay, rabbit trail alert. There's an element called curium, for example. And it's got 96 protons, and it was discovered by the team of Glenn T. Seaborg, Ralph A. James, and Albert, I don't even know how to pronounce this name, G-H-I-O-R-S-O, Gihorso, at Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory, 1944. It's called Curium. 
they got that name. They named it after Pierre and Marie Curie. It's synthetic. And they created it using the particle accelerator there at that Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory. All right, back on track. Now, an atom. An atom is made up of a nucleus that, ha- that is surrounded by a cloud of electrons orbiting around it. So you got this little tiny thing. Let's, let's call it a grape. Think about it as a grape. The nucleus of that atom is made up of a very closely bound combination of protons and neutrons. So if we take that grape and there's all the little um, parts of that grape that are inside, those are all protons and neutrons. Now, we need to introduce a new term. We need to introduce the term isotope. We're a certain isotope, which we'll talk about in more detail, of hydrogen. There is a certain isotope of hydrogen that does not have any neutrons in it. Okay. Just hold on to that. We'll come back to it. I'll tie it all together, I promise. Back to the nucleus. This nucleus is made up of protons and neutrons. It's surrounded by a cloud of electromagnetically bound electrons that orbit around the nucleus. That is the makeup of an atom, which is the smallest particle in the universe that has and retains its own unique chemical and physical properties. What are some physical properties? Well, color, weight, uh, shape, whether it's magnetic. Those are types of physical properties, things that we can readily observe. Chemical properties. Chemical properties are things that we have to do something to it to see how it reacts. I don't want to get too far off the beaten track. We're talking nuclear here. Now, this term, isotope, that I mentioned a minute ago or two. We need to quickly discuss it. There can be one atom of uranium that is different from another atom of uranium. If you've ever heard the terms uranium-235 or U-235, another one is uranium-238, also called U-238, then you've heard about different isotopes of uranium. Another isotope that's thrown around randomly when talking about this stuff is plutonium-239. And it, it's typically mentioned with a, a scowl and, and how it's the, you know, poisonous and highly radioactive nuclear waste. That's when plutonium-239 usually gets mentioned. Now, chemically speaking, uranium is uranium is uranium, and all uranium has the same chemical and physical properties. Like I mentioned, these are things like color, mass, or weight, uh, melting point, those types of things. However, this is not so at the nuclear level. Before we go any further, talking about an isotope, we'll talk a little more about the atom. Can an atom be broken up or split? Yes. That is precisely where we venture into the nuclear realm of things. The nucleus that we talked about is held together by a few forces. And I'm going to keep this at a high altitude, low detail level, I promise. Here's a disclaimer for this episode. We're not nuclear physicists writing a scientific research paper here. We're just talking at a level of human curiosity, seeking a basic understanding about what nuclear power is and is not. So the details that I'm going to share here may at times be a bit simplified. 
I may explain certain things that are correct at a conceptual level, but be lacking greatly at a technical level. The purpose of this is to provide a big picture understanding rather than technical precision. If we want to talk technical precision, I can, but I can swim in the deep end with with nuclear physicists, but I don't think that this is the time or the place to do that. The universe, as complex as it is, has just four fundamental forces. This is going to blow your mind. Has just four fundamental forces upon which all other forces are based. These forces are responsible for all interactions known to science, and we experience them every moment of the day. Those forces are gravitational forces, electromagnetic forces, weak nuclear forces, and strong nuclear forces. That statement may mess with your mind a little bit. What about friction? What about pressure? While those are forces, they are not fundamental forces. Trust me, I went down a deep rabbit trail trying to defend the honor of friction, but for everyone's sanity, I'll skip that discussion. These forces are all in play when we talk about how the atom, and specifically for this conversation, how the nucleus of an atom is held together. There are energy forces within the nucleus that work to hold it together and also try to break it apart as well. If you're curious about this aspect of things, you'll find that it has to do with the electromagnetic forces of positively charged protons trying to push each other apart. Remember the old saying, opposites attract and likes repel? Well, that saying comes from the fundamental principles of electromagnetism that you've probably heard of. Positively charged particles, the protons, will repel away from other protons. Opposites attract and likes repel. That is the dynamic that is going on within the nucleus if there is more than one proton. Remember that within the nucleus, there are protons and neutrons. The electrons, which are negatively charged particles, are external to the nucleus. They're flying around that nucleus. It'd be like if we go back to that grape analogy. All these electrons are flying around that grape. They're in a cloud orbiting that nucleus, and relatively speaking, they are crazy far away from that nucleus. I once heard an analogy or a comparison. I haven't done the math, but the comparison jives with me. If an atom were the size of a professional football stadium, the nucleus would be the size of a grape sitting in the middle of the field on the 50-yard line. The electrons would be orbiting at a distance equal to the row of seats furthest from the field. So, in the nucleus, protons are positively charged. Neutrons. Based on the name, neutron, what charge would you think the neutrons hold? If you're thinking neutral or no charge, then you're correct. When a nucleus has many protons, there is a large force trying to push those protons apart. This electromagnetic force has, relatively speaking, a large range in which it will affect other particles. If there are enough neutrons in the nucleus, the distance between the proton-to-proton ratio is increased, and that causes a reduction in the repulsion force caused by the electromagnetic forces, and it's reduced because of the distance that the neutrons provide, kind of like a buffer. 
a nucleus with many protons and very few neutrons would likely be unstable because of all the repulsive forces. If there were enough neutrons, neutral particles to give the appropriate amount of space to keep the protons separated enough, that repulsive force may be reduced enough to gain stability. Then again, too many neutrons to protons causes other issues, and then we have an unstable nucleus. Now, scientists have figured out that there is a proton to neutron ratio that contributes to the determination of whether an atom is stable or not, and if not stable, it is said to be radioactive. Earlier, I introduced the term isotope. We're going to really dig in deep here for a minute. The number of protons within the nucleus of an atom will determine what that element is. An atom with one proton is hydrogen. That's the first element on the periodic chart of the, of the elements. An atom with two protons is helium. That's the second. An atom with three protons is lithium, etc., 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 all the way through that periodic chart of the elements. Now, that atom that has one proton, hydrogen, might not have any neutrons. It could have one neutron, or it might have two neutrons. The number of protons plus neutrons will tell us the isotope of that element. So remember, we have the element determined by the protons, and then we have the isotope of that element, and that depends on the total number of protons and neutrons combined. This all makes sense in just a minute. Hydrogen with one proton and no neutrons could be called hydrogen one. Another name, although not frequently used or known, is protium. Hydrogen-1 is the most common form of hydrogen in nature and from a nuclear perspective is a stable atom. Hydrogen with one proton, this again is what makes it hydrogen, and one neutron could be called hydrogen-2, but you've probably heard it called something else. It's more widely known as deuterium. Many associate the term deuterium with the term heavy water. Heavy water is H2O, but in heavy water, all of the hydrogen atoms that make up the water molecule have one proton, again that makes it hydrogen, plus one neutron, which makes it hydrogen 2, or deuterium. So that specific isotope of hydrogen, and thus we get heavy water. The importance of the term isotope in this discussion is that different isotopes of the same element have different nuclear characteristics. Take a quick jump back. We've got physical properties and we've got chemical properties. Now we have nuclear properties or nuclear characteristics. Now let's go back to the forces that exist within the nucleus. Until this point, we've been talking about the electromagnetic forces opposites attract, that sort of thing. But within the nucleus, there are no opposites, only positive protons, and neutrons being neutral, right? The other three forces at play, besides the electromagnetic force, are gravity, the strong nuclear force, and the weak nuclear force. Gravity is a force 
within the nucleus, if you can imagine that. Gravity is a force that is applied by one body of mass onto another and is proportional to the masses of the two bodies. The range of gravity, believe this or not, the range of gravity is actually infinite. That's why we see the sun holding the earth in orbit. That's why we see the sun holding comets in orbit that have tremendous orbits that go way far out into the universe. That's why we see the Milky Way galaxy holding our solar system where it's holding. And that's why we see one galaxy attracting another. For instance, maybe you've heard of the Milky Way galaxy and the Andromeda galaxy. We're gently gliding towards each other because of the forces of gravity. Okay, I've just taken us out of nuclear physics into astronomy, and I didn't mean to do that. So, in the case of gravity, where we're talking about the mass of protons and neutrons being so infinitesimally low, we will completely dismiss the effects of gravity because it is so minor in this discussion at our level, meaning the non-scientist, curious person. Then there's the strong nuclear force that applies to the interaction between all nucleons, which is just another name for groups of protons and neutrons, so things that make up the nucleus. This strong nuclear force is an attractive force that acts equally between protons and neutrons, neutrons and protons, and between protons and protons as well. So all the particles, the protons and neutrons that are inside that nucleus, they're all so close to each other that the strong nuclear force is causing an attraction between each of those particles. It's that strong nuclear force that overcomes the electromagnetic force that is trying to cause those protons to repel from each other because of their positive charges. And remember, opposites attract, likes repel. Now, we're going to get into the strong nuclear force a little bit more deeply. It is a strong nuclear force that's an attractive force that overcomes the electromagnetic forces seen in the nucleus due to the repulsion of the positive protons. We've mentioned that. This force is called strong nuclear force for a reason. This attractive force is incredibly, fantastically strong. In fact, the strong nuclear force is the strongest force of all the forces known in the universe. However, the flip side to this force is, as strong as it is, the distance that it has any effect on other particles is extremely short. If you can get just a little bit of distance, that strong nuclear force has no effect. Where gravity, on one hand, is, has an infinite distance, but is very weak, the strong nuclear force is fantastically strong, but only over a short distance. You could think of the strong nuclear force as having an iron grip, but that iron grip can't reach very far. In fact, this distance is so short that it is believed that the strong nuclear force dissipates to zero, meaning it has no effect, at the distance of the diameter of a proton, which now we're going we're gonna to get into some numbers here. Don't run away with your hair on fire. The diameter of a proton, which is 10 to the minus 13th of a centimeter. 
Let's compare that to something. Let's put it in perspective. The diameter of a proton, 0.0000, so 12 zeros with a 1 behind it, 0.000000000, yada, 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 1 of a centimeter. That is 0.12 more zeros followed by a 1 of a centimeter. This is extremely small. Let's compare it to the thickness of a human hair. The thickness of a human hair is about 2.5 times 10 to the minus 4th of a centimeter. So that would be 0.0025 of a centimeter. That's a lot bigger than the diameter of a proton. Another way to look at it, if my math is correct, would be to say that you could fit 2.5 times 10 to the 10th power of protons across the diameter of a human hair. In English, what I'm saying is you could fit 25 billion protons side to side and then you would get to the thickness of the diameter of a human hair. 25 billion protons across the diameter of a human hair. I cannot even wrap my brain around that. The strong nuclear force has a weakness. It's called even the slightest submicroscopic distance. Super strong, but only over a short distance. Next, there is something called the weak nuclear force. This force baffled me when I was in my Navy nuclear power school training to the nth degree. I'm so thankful it didn't play a major part in what I needed to understand to get through that program. I'm going to leave it at this with simply saying that it becomes a major player when we get into quantum physics and the interrelationships with between quarks and gluons. And we'd only need to get involved in that discussion if we were talking about breaking up protons and neutrons and electrons, which we are doing in scientific research. And it's very, very cool. So the takeaway is this. Imagine an atom of anything in the known universe, anything from hydrogen to gold to Lorentzium and beyond. We're talking about elements, the building blocks of everything in our universe here. Whichever element you picked will have one or more isotopes. The way the element that you selected reacts or does not react at a chemical or physical level is determined by the number of protons and to a certain extent, the number of electrons. For example, uranium. Uranium has 92 protons. Again, uranium is uranium is uranium from a chemical and a physical property viewpoint. The way that an element reacts or does not react at a nuclear level is determined by the number of protons and neutrons added together that are inside the nucleus. Isotopes of uranium are uranium-238, which is the most abundant in nature, but U-238 does not undergo fission. There's uranium-235. Still has 92 protons, but it's got three fewer neutrons. It's relatively rare, but it will undergo fission, which is what we'll talk about here in a later episode. Then there's uranium-233 and uranium-234 and so on. If you've ever heard discussions about enriching uranium, 
whatever entity that might be, if they're on our side, that's a good thing. If they're on the bad guy's side, that's a bad thing. What they're doing is when we mine uranium, like I said, uranium-238 is most abundant and uranium-235 is rare. So in order to create nuclear fuel, we need to take that uranium-238 and convert it to uranium-235. That's the enrichment process. So the isotope of any particular element will either be stable or not. If it's stable, it will not be radioactive. If it's not stable, then it is radioactive. The goal of something that's radioactive, there's not a whole there's not any magic in this at all. The goal of something that is radioactive is to shed its excess energy to get down to what scientists call a ground state. Here's an example. If I throw a baseball, the further it gets away from me, the closer it will get to the ground. This is because of gravity. Remember, that's one of those four fundamental forces. When I threw the ball, I gave it energy. The ball gives up its energy because gravity is pulling it towards the earth. When that ball comes in contact with the ground, it may roll a short distance and come to a stop. This ball lost altitude due to gravity, and it rolled to a stop due to friction. Once it's on the ground and has stopped rolling, it has become motionless. It could be said that this ball is now at its ground state. It has given up all of its energy. Comparing this back to the atom, it is no longer radioactive. It has decayed. Likewise, an atom that is radioactive is emitting radiation. It's giving up energy. It's decaying. Its goal is to get to a stable condition or ground state. Falls to the ground. That atom is releasing energy in the form of radiation. It is said to be decaying. What is it decaying to? Oh, that will be a fun discussion, but it would be an entirely different podcast episode for sure. But as I think about it, I do want to mention a term that is important for our discussion. It's a commonly used term called half-life. Half-life is the amount of time that it takes for a quantity of an amount of matter to reduce to half of its initial value. Later in the discussion, I'm going to tackle the complaint of people of the anti-nuclear persuasion and their argument that nuclear power produces all of this radioactive waste with half-lives of millions upon millions of years. That's a later discussion. So, just a quick repeat. Half-life is the amount of time that it takes for a quantity of an amount of matter to reduce to half of its initial value. So why did I just take you through a basic physics discussion? Well, now that we have a basic idea of how the atom is constructed, we can get into an explanation as to what happens if we break it apart. We'll have that discussion in the next episode. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I am asking you to reach out to me if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode of this podcast regarding this or any other topic for that matter, you can ask questions about the content that I've covered. Or if you are knowledgeable on the subject, I welcome you to add to what I've said or even to oppose what I've said. I am open to a good discussion. I would love to have you share your knowledge, thoughts, feelings, beliefs, opinions, and or even your fears if you have them about nuclear power. 
to contact me to make arrangements to be a guest on the Ton of Questions podcast, simply reach out to me on the newly added feature of my website called SpeakPipe. It's as easy as leaving a voicemail. All you have to do is click on the button, record your message, then send it. I'll receive it as a voice message in an email, and I will get back with you, and we can go forward from there. All right, I'm going to call this a wrap. With that, I'm going to close out and wish you a wonderful rest of your day or night, as the case may be. This has been an episode of the Ton of Questions podcast. I hope you've enjoyed our time together. If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear it. Head on over to www.tonofquestions.com. Leave me a SpeakPipe message to share your thoughts. It's as simple as leaving a voicemail. Thanks for listening and come back soon.